suggested to you last week um, is that Isaiah gives us, God gives us through Isaiah in these verses, um, a picture of what history looks like from the time of Isaiah even into eternity. So it's a, it's a, it's like a little peephole, you know, a little keyhole through which we look into the whole expanse of human history from the time of Isaiah, actually antedating the time of Isaiah, but we'll just say the time of Isaiah. In the first half of the seventh century BC, we'll just say around 675 BC, it's a, it's a little peephole, a little window into the whole of the rest of history stretching even into eternity. So, so there's no end to what is in view here. Truth of God. There's, you know, there's what God does. There's the reality of it. It's undeniable. It's unmistakable. It's frankly irrefutable. Um, but folks, in order to see it, you got to have the eye of faith. You just do. Everybody's got a grid. Everybody's got a grid through which they see things and interpret things and understand things. And what God is telling us through Isaiah is that I, I've got to have a different grid. I've got to have a different way of seeing things. And our tendency in this culture is to see what we can see and dispute what we can't see. If I can't see it, feel it, taste it, smell it, if I can't measure it, weigh it in scales, it isn't real. Well, if that's, if that's how we determine at the end of the day what is to be believed, let's blow out the candles, shut the doors, and go home. Because the thing that happened 20 centuries ago, I mean, either it happened or it didn't happen, and the thing that happened 20 centuries ago simply cannot be circumscribed, understood by the human mind. It's, it's, you can't, you're, you can't do it. You can't do it. The thing that we're celebrating in this season is that a baby born like any other baby, weak, frail, helpless, who needed to be changed. Let's, I mean, let's not diminish the real and true humanity of this thing. This baby that was laid in a feeding trough in, in an obscure place, in an out-of-the-way land, this baby, Christians have affirmed for 20 centuries, it's at the core of Christian orthodoxy, that baby, real baby, who needed to be nursed, who needed to be fed, who did grow, that baby was God incarnate. That baby in that feeding trough was God. This is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from the other religions of the world. Please hear this. Every other religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, the, the Eastern philosophies that have woven their way into the thinking of so many in our culture, all ask the question, what do I have to do to get to God? In one way or another, Christianity is the only religion that says God came to us. God came to us to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to take us back home to him, to be with him. That's what we embrace at, at, at Advent. It's what we say we believe. And you, it's the only the eye of faith. And a whole lot of other things as well, some of which we enumerated last week. So that's the first thing that Isaiah tells us. But then this next thing, 
I'm not going to make you stand much longer. This next thing is sort of the when of all of this. The what we'll look at next week, but what is the when? When is all of this going to happen? Well, that's what he tells us here. So let me read, beginning at verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion will go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and decide disputes for many people. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us right now to walk in the light of the Lord. Help us to walk in the light of the word that you have given to us for our good and for your people across the centuries. Come by your spirit. Help us to see what we can't see. Break down our resistance. Break down the walls of unbelief. Oh, Lord, penetrate the darkness and give us grace to see what we can't see. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So the when is the thing that we want to look at, the thing that we're considering here. And as we come to this, I want to point out particularly this little phrase in verse 2. It shall come to pass something down there, something out there, something removed from Isaiah 775 B.C., something farther down the road of history in the latter. It's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. When is it going to come to pass? Isaiah says it's going to come to pass in the latter days. In the latter days. Now, I just want to acknowledge with you, confess if you will. I'm not repenting of anything. I'm just acknowledging, confess with you, that there's a lot of confusion. I believe there's a great deal of confusion out there about what this phrase means. I was just uh, talking with someone uh, this morning, actually, actually with Ivan, about this, this phrase, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a whole take on this latter days thing. Um, again, I'm never here to pick a fight, okay? But but the Left Behind series is all about the latter days. It's all about the last days, the latter days. And I just think that there's a lot of confusion out there about what this phrase really refers to: the latter days or the last days. So what I want to do with you this morning first is look at the biblical data. And I can't look at all of it. We can't. I mean, this is a, well, mine's kind of skinny, but there are 66 books here, 39 in the Old Testament. And this phrase, or these phrases, in the latter days, in the last days, beginning actually in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 30, from the pen of Moses, or the stylus of Moses, or the, the, the chisel of Moses, you know, whatever it was that Moses used, that phrase first appears on the lips of Moses. When Moses uses it in Deuteronomy 4, verse 30, 
He's looking down the corridor of history at days which will come when Israel, because of her disobedience, will be exiled. And he says, after those days, or in the latter days, after the days of the exile, which result because of the disobedience of Israel, they will return. There will be days that will come after the disobedience, after the exile, and they'll return. That's the first use of the phrase, the latter days, Deuteronomy 4.30. You can check me out. But through the rest of Old Testament redemptive history, this phrase, the latter days, gets picked up by the prophets. And the prophets begin to use that same language, that same phraseology with respect to something, frankly, infinitely more glorious, infinitely more majestic than the simple return of Israel from the Babylonian occupation back to the, to the land of promise to rebuild the temple and the city. And this is what you see in Isaiah chapter 2. You get a little snapshot of it. So, the, But across, throughout the prophets, I mean, you see it everywhere, this phrase, in the last days, the latter days, at that time, in that day, the phrases show up all over the place. So we can't look at the whole of the data. I've given you some of it. I've given you the first use of it, Deuteronomy 4. But let me give you a little bit more. Let me Let me try to do some interpretive work with you here. In the first place, just take the term, the simple word day or days. Now, what you need to remember uh, as you read that word in Isaiah and you think about its usage going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where there are days that are referred to, what you need to remember is beginning with Genesis through Moses And at a particular point in time, a particular place in history, God himself revealing things about himself to his people and for his people uses that language of day and days, right? That's Genesis 1. God is behind what Moses is doing. God is the one who is inspiring Moses to use particular words and phrases. And so God is the one who is the author of this word. The idea uh, gives us the content for this word. And as I said, it comes to the people of Israel at a particular place in time. And what is that particular place in time? Well, it comes to them during the years of the Exodus, after their deliverance, between their bondage in Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. That's when it comes to them. That's when Moses exercised his ministry. That's when Moses received this word that's been preserved for us. And here's the thing you need to know. It's why this word is so important. These people had been living in Egypt for over four centuries. And the Egyptian view of history was very different from the Hebrew view of history. The Egyptian view of history was frankly cyclical. Days just followed days, just followed days, just followed days, years, decades, centuries, millennia, and there was no terminus out there. You understand? There's no terminus, no end point. Well, in the first chapters of the book of the Bible, given that context in which these people had lived for 400 years, okay, given that context... The first thing that God does in the use of this word 
is begin to convey to the people. See, this is also familiar to you or pretty familiar to you that it's not as shocking for you as it probably would have been for them. What God has done right out of the chute as he reveals the truth about himself, his dealings with the world, his dealings with his people, he gives them a pattern which becomes the pattern for understanding the whole of human history. Here's the pattern. We still observe it. Six days followed by a seventh day. A collection of days followed by a special, significant day. Six days of creative work, six days of labor, six days of activity, followed by, yes, a day of rest. Don't have time to go into all of this right now. But if you look at that seventh day in the context of the sixth, and what God says about that seventh day, what that seventh day is, is not just... It's not just a cessation from labor. It's not just a day to take a nap. It's not just a day of rest. At the end of the sixth day, in that transition between the sixth and the seventh days, God says about everything that he has made, behold, this is very good, over-the-top good, mega-good. Hugely good, ginormously good. This is supremely good. And in fact, what is being said, God is saying as he passes judgment on what he has done through those six days, what he is saying in effect is this is exactly what I want to do. And now I'm going to enter into the enjoyment of it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to delight in it. That's what someone is doing when he says or she says, this thing that I have made, I like. You know, one of the frustrations for artists, I think, is that they never really enjoy the finished work of their hands. They look at what they they say, I could have done that a little better. That could be a little bit better. That could be a little better. There are geniuses like Michelangelo and Mozart who have the genius of creativity, for the rest of us, we have the genius of enjoyment. Because we look at what they did and we say, that is phenomenal. How does somebody conceive to do something like that? For God, who is the perfect architect, perfect artist, perfect creator, there is both the infinite capacity to create and produce and there is the infinite capacity to enjoy the thing that he has made. And that's what he does on day seven. He ceases from the work. He takes a rest, if you will, from the work and he enters into the enjoyment of what he has made. And folks, if you want to talk to me about this, call me, we'll go have lunch. That is what God is teaching Israel about history. At the end of history, there is an eternal seventh day. There is an eternal Sabbath. And the collection of the days all leads up to the end of the days and the beginning of the eternal day. The day of rest, enjoyment, fulfillment, blessedness, prosperity. That's what God is teaching Israel about the days. The days of history. So every week, this is why we gather for worship, okay? Hard to understand this, I know. Hard for me to understand it too. 
Okay, I I can probably see, hear, imagine the objections. The point is, we come here to enjoy. Somehow, by the grace of God, as God comes into the midst of his people, presents himself to us in word and in sacrament, we come here somehow by his spirit, by his grace, to enter into a taste of the enjoyment that awaits us at the end of the days. That's what God is teaching Israel in the first days. That's the the basic biblical data that you need to know and understand if you're going to understand days, and particularly this phrase, the latter days. Okay, So that's day and days. That's how the Hebrew mind thought about every day. Every day was connected to the days before and the days to come, and those days were going someplace. They were moving in the direction of a consummation, a completion, when the work would be done, and there would be an entrance in to the enjoyment of the finished labor. Okay? Now, attach that to this word, ladder. TT, not DD. Latter days, not latter days climbing a ladder or whatever. Latter days. The term ladder simply simply translated means the farthest, the farthest removed, the most distant of the days. So for Moses, for Isaiah, the particular prophet, for the prophets, they would look at the days, understanding where the days are going And they would understand that God disclosed this to them, revealed this to them, that there are days that come at the end of the days, and those are the latter days. Those are the days farthest removed from us. Connected to our days, but removed from us as the latter days, the last of the days. Again, you see it all throughout the prophets, but you see it in Isaiah chapter 9. One of these prophecies that is read so often uh, during this season of the year, Isaiah chapter 9, you, you could read the whole of the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. Those are the verses that give us this wonderful description of the coming Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. By people who reject, who disparage, seek to alter and twist and distort the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. It was true in Peter's day. It is true in our day. It is a thing that will characterize the whole period of the last days. Friends, I'm asking you to think with me, look with me and think with me about how the Bible uses this language, how the Bible thinks about itself, if you will. And here's the conclusion, and remember, this is a three-part sermon, so a whole lot of the application of this is going to come next week. But here's, let me just make this sort of final summarizing description, and then I'm going to use an illustration that I hope will help you think about it. 
The way the Bible views history very simply is that there is a creation at a point in time, and that begins the days of human history. The prophets saw something significant happening, and it would happen in the midst of and to produce the latter days, the days that would come at the end of the days that began with the first day of human history. And there would be these things that would take place across the whole of the latter days. There would be things like rule and reign. There would be things like the things described in Isaiah chapter 2, where not just a nation, but the nations would come to a mountain. This is what we're going to look at next week. And that mountain would be exalted above the mountains and it would dwarf the mountains and all the hills. And a word would go forth from Jerusalem and peoples would both stream to Jerusalem and the word would come out from Jerusalem. There'd be this coming and going that would characterize these days. That's what you see in verses two and three. And then at the end of those days, The latter days coming at the end of the expanse of days at the end of those days would be the final day, the day of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God. You see that in Isaiah 2, verse 12. There is a day that the Lord has reserved, and it is a day of vengeance, and it is a day of judgment. And so all of human history leads up to the latter days, the last days, which culminates in the day of the Lord. And following that comes the sabbatical rest, the eternal rest into which all of God's people enter to enjoy the blessedness of the work that God has done in their behalf. That's how you should think about history. That's how the Bible thinks about history. And how you should think about yourself right now in the midst of this history is that you are in the midst of, sometime on this side of, the great day of the Lord, but in the midst of these last days that Peter talks about that were inaugurated by the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and rule of Jesus the King. We're in them. We're in them, my friends. That's what the Bible is teaching us. Now, let me use this illustration. How do you think about this? I've got to do this quickly, I know. Imagine that you're going to take a trip from Vero Beach, Florida, to Grand Junction, Colorado. Okay? To get to Grand Junction, Colorado, which is on the west side of the Rocky Mountain Range, you've got to go through the Rocky Mountains to get to Grand Junction, Right? From, and the, the total distance is about 2,200 miles. Long way from Vero Beach to Grand Junction. Okay. Do you know what the distance from Denver, Denver, which is on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, is to Grand Junction? It's about 225 or 30 miles. If you think of this thing spatially, those miles are the latter miles. Those are the distant miles of your journey. There are a lot of miles you got to cover before you can get to the last miles, the latter miles, before you get over the final range of mountains and get to Grand Junction, Colorado, where you can turn around and you can look back across the whole of the Rocky Mountain ranges. But what's interesting is when you get to Denver, you're not done. When you get to Denver, you're not done. You got to go over mountain passes. You have to go down into valleys. You've got to go over this range and that range and another. You've got 200 
and 25 or more miles still to travel after you get to Denver. My friends, the peaks and the valleys of the appearing of Jesus are all encapsulated, gathered into this little peephole through which we peer with Isaiah down the corridor of history to the coming of those great days. There are high watermarks in the days of the coming king. There are also deep valleys and days of darkness, both for him and for you. When you get to the appearing of the Messiah, there is still some distance to be traveled. We're 20 centuries into the distance that exists between Denver and Grand Junction. And frankly, I don't know when we get to Grand Junction. You understand? And interestingly, neither did Jesus. Don't ask me the day or the hour. I don't know. The Father alone knows. And this is what we'll look at next week. My responsibility now, while I'm in the mountains, enjoying breathtaking views and plummeting into deep, dark, hard valleys, whether enjoying breathtaking views or struggling through the valleys, in these days, I am called upon by King Jesus to seek by his grace in company with my brothers and sisters to walk faithfully before him. That's the call of God upon my life. It's not to figure out where we are in human history. It's not to figure out whether it's in two weeks or two years or two decades or centuries or two more millennia. The call of God upon my life is exactly what it was on Peter and John and the others. It is simply by God's grace in company with his people to seek to walk faithfully, faithfully before him. John had this very much in mind. I mentioned it last week. I'll close with this. John had it very much in mind when he wrote the revelation and he identified himself as your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom. Now you think about that this week. I am your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom. The kingdom is the mountaintops. The tribulation is the valleys. Both things are going to characterize our lives. And John says in that ninth verse, this requires patient endurance. Patient endurance. Which is simply John's way of saying, the call of God upon my life and yours, while we find ourselves in the mountains, awaiting the return of Jesus, call of God upon my life is to seek by his grace to walk faithfully before him for his glory and for the good of his people and for the good of the nations. A little segue into next week. Ultimately, folks, it's not about us. It's not about us. Right now, it is about the nations. It's about the world around us and the nations as we walk and seek to walk faithfully in days of exhilaration and in days of tribulation. Let's pray together and ready our hearts as we seek to come to the table of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness, 
for the favor that you have poured out upon us. Please help us to see where we are, oh God. Help us to see how we are to live until that great day when you bring to completion what you have started with the first promises made after the fall and what you started even more fully in your incarnation, your life, death, resurrection, ascension, and rule and reign. Help us to see, Lord, how we are to live in light of those realities. And from your place of regal splendor and authority and glory, would you by your spirit come to your people and feed their hearts at this table, we pray in your name. Amen. We invite you to stand as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.